All right, great to be with you. Let's get into the Word of God. We are in Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, if you want to open up there. We're going to be looking at verses 9 through 13. Uh, the title of this morning's message is The Empty Booth. The Empty Booth. Continuing in our verse-by-verse study of the book of Matthew. I'll be reading and preaching from the NIV this morning. Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 9. It says, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we pray together this morning that you would help us to hear your word. What it is you want to communicate to us, your grace that comes to us through your word, your love that is made evident there, that is experienced in your word, and your call upon us. You calling us to yourselves, you calling us to live and to walk in a certain way to follow you. We pray that we would hear your word this morning. Help us now, Lord, to overcome our distractions. We easily get consumed with thoughts about ourselves and what might be for lunch and all these other things and what's awkward in the room. Help us to fix our hearts and minds on you, Christ, and your word. And to hear it, receive it, believe it, and obey it. And Lord, please help me now to teach it in a way that is honest and faithful and helpful because it's anointed and empowered by your Holy Spirit for the glory of Jesus. We ask it together in Christ's name. Amen. 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 At your high school, remember high school? Season Saints, you don't, but do you remember high school, some people? (laughs) You remember high school? Who at your high school would have been voted least likely to get saved. That one wasn't in the yearbook, but George raised his hand. Maybe it was you. Maybe it was you. That wasn't the point of the question, but maybe it was you. You know, we, in high school, did you do this at your school? You vote people like most likely to succeed, most likely this and that, or best this and that. I got voted, believe it or not, in high school, best hair. It wasn't for this. I had super long, blonde surfer hair down the middle of my back. There's actually a picture of me looking like a girl. I beat all the girls in the school. There were some girls that were so bummed. My friend Elsha had this beautiful long hair beater. (laughs) Best hair. But who at your high school would have gotten voted if they had it? Least likely to get saved. You know, if we were at Galilee High School, in Capernaum, where this takes place, on the northwest edge of the Sea of Galilee in the first century. You know who would have gotten voted most least likely, excuse me, to get saved at Galilee High? Matthew. Matthew would have gotten voted least likely to get saved. Why? Because Matthew was a tax collector. 
And we read that and we think, IRS, that's right. They'll never get saved. But that's not really what's in view here. Tax collection was a whole different thing back then. Israel was under Roman occupation. Rome was a culture that extended wealth and affluence through a lot of the world, but they also extended death through a lot of the world. It was a, 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 a domineering, death-oriented sort of culture. Uh, and, and one of the ways that they dominated other cultures was through heavy taxation. And the way that that took place in Israel is an Israelite, a Jew, several of them would bid to get the rights to tax their people and give the money to Israel and went to the highest bidder. So you had to have your stuff together if you were a tax collector. It wasn't just like you thought, oh, that's cool. I could probably like, you know, pick up the money when people cruise by or whatever. Like people didn't want to pay taxes. You know what I mean? So you had to have your stuff together. You had to be able to enforce Rome's taxation laws. And when people were disgruntled about it, you had, to, you had to wield the authority that was entrusted to you by Rome. You had the power of Rome behind you, Roman soldiers and Roman centurions. And you were considered then by Jewish culture a traitor. You're supposed to be one of us. Now you're working for the man and you're taxing us. And these are heavy taxations. And the way that the tax collectors would make their money is Rome required a certain amount and whatever they collected beyond that amount was, what, amount was what they got to keep. So the better tax collector you were, the more you made for yourself. And they were generally wealthy because they were generally ruthless. And they wielded and they abused power and authority. And they did so against their own kinsfolk, their own countrymen. And it was like a vicious cycle. The, the better they were at it, the more they could tax the people, the more angry the people got and hated them, the more they would tax the people. And there was this real culture around uh, Jewish tax collectors of like animosity, and difficulty. And so nobody would have thought, oh yeah, Matthew, he's the first guy that's gonna get right when the Messiah comes. He would have been voted least likely to get saved because of this thing that was in him that would make him even want to be a tax collector and this rebellion against Israel that he portrayed and this co- co- cooperating with the enemy. And when Jesus calls Matthew here in Matthew 9, Jesus is on a, a bit of a roll. He's on a bit of a roll in, in chapters 8 and 9. I mean, he touched the leper and healed him and he healed a bunch of other people and then he said a couple words and the wind and the waves and the storm died and then he got to the other side of the galley and there were two guys, demonized, crazy, violent guys. And with a word, he cast out the demons. And then he comes back and they lower down the paralytic in front of him and he forgives his sins and proves he has the authority to do so by telling the man, get up and walk. And the guy is healed. Jesus is on a bit of a roll in Matthew 8 and 9 and it culminates in this call to Matthew. Follow me. And it's a powerful thing. There wasn't an explanation. There wasn't a detailed like mission statement. This is what it's going to look like. This is what we'll do. It was just like this powerful, follow me. And there wasn't a discussion. There wasn't an argument. There wasn't a dialogue. Matthew got up, left left his tax booth and followed Jesus. And Mark tells us that when Matthew did that, he left everything. And he followed Jesus. Jesus is still on a roll. If it were an election year in Israel during this time, and Jesus were running for office, his campaign manager would have said, listen, don't call Matthew. Call somebody else. This isn't going to look good. 
And by all means, don't go to the dinner at Matthew's house. Don't go to the sinner celebration dinner with the other tax collectors and the sinners. That's where we find Jesus, having dinner at Matthew's house. They would have said, this is, these are not good optics. You need to pivot away from this. This doesn't make for a good view on an election year. And the establishment, the power base, was rather upset about it. The Pharisees. They say in verse 11, what, what, what's up with Jesus? Why does he fellowship with tax collectors and sinners? This isn't rabbi behavior. This doesn't look like Messiah material to us. But this is perhaps the most telling and clarifying event in the book of Matthew thus far. Jesus saying to Matthew, the same one who penned the book, follow me. This is telling, this is clarifying. When Jesus was questioned about why he did this and why he spent time with tax collectors and sinners, he says in verse 12, because it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And he says to the Pharisees, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Here's how it's clarifying. Jesus clarifies in no uncertain terms what his mission is. And his mission was a mission to the sick. It wasn't the physically sick. It was the for real, deep, intrinsic, spiritually sick. It was the sin thing and the sinner thing that Jesus came to address. Clarified his mission. What was his mission? He came for those people, he uses the analogy of the doctor. Look, the doctor doesn't spend his time on people who are well. He spends his time on people who are sick. I haven't, called, I haven't come to call those who think they are righteous is the idea, but rather those who know they are sinners. Now, here's why this was difficult for the antagonists here, the Pharisees, the religious establishment. It was difficult for them because they generally had a certain approach when it came to tax collectors and sinners. They had in their writings a saying that said, quote, keep yourself far from an evil neighbor and don't consort with the wicked, end quote. So the religious establishment had this idea. If there's a tax collector sort of guy, if there's a sinner sort of person, don't associate with them. Don't get near to them. In fact, the rabbis of that day declared tax collectors to be unclean. What else was unclean? Pigs. Remember the other side of the galley? And they said, you know what, tax collectors, they're like pigs. So here's what the establishment, the religious establishment does. We don't associate with them. Keep yourself far from them. Jesus has this clarifying moment in his ministry and his mission where he is seen as going after the unclean. Pursuing the rebel. Consorting with the sinners. And that wasn't the way that the Pharisees worked, nor was it the way that they want to work. Work, excuse me. And so this was from their perspective. If we, if we take Jesus as a Jewish rabbi, which he was in a sense, this was from their perspective, a, a change in approach that they were obviously uncomfortable with. But it shouldn't have been a change in approach for Israel. Because this is the way that God has always been. 
This is the way that God meant his people to be. This is the way that God has always been. Remember in Jeremiah 31, what God said to his people when they were rebellious? He said, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have drawn you with loving kindness. We're like, you know, his people are like trying to run away. They're, they're in rebellion. And Jesus, God there is drawing them with loving kindness. So the expression of that in the ministry and the life of Jesus is Luke 19. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. And Jesus would say to his disciples later on in John 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you. You didn't choose me, I chose you. That was a change from Jewish rabbi protocol. Normally, would-be disciples of a Jewish rabbi would go and say, I want to sit under your teaching. Jesus was going after people like Matthew. And you say to all of them, his collection of sinners known as his disciples later on, you didn't choose me, I chose you. Because that's God's heart for people like that. For people like us, Ephesians 1 explains it well. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. Look at this phrase. This is what he wanted to do. And it gave him great pleasure. This is what God wanted to do. When someone was broken by sin in the world and their own sin and sinful desires and they became a Matthew, God wanted to go after them with love. Saying it in, in infathomable terms, before, uh, terms, excuse me, before I ever made the world, I already loved you, Matthew. I already decided that I would bring you to myself. I already chose you. This is what Jesus is doing. This is who Jesus is. God's love made manifest. And this is the story of God's love and the way that it's playing out in the Gospels, the way it's playing out in our lives, the way it's playing out in our world. Jesus seeking and saving the lost because of the love of God. This is the mystery and the beauty of the incarnation. John 1 says, And the word, speaking of Jesus, became flesh. And he dwelt among us, right? God draping himself in flesh, coming to us. He dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's God's story, is that God pursues sinners. That's our story because we too are those who have been in rebellion to God. Sinners. And what this is, what this constitutes is call on Matthew. Jesus going to his tax booth and saying, follow me. What that is, is a picture, what that is a picture of is grace and the gospel. What Israel was used to under the leadership of the establishment, the Pharisees, was hard, cold religion. We see this in our world all the time. You know, what, you know what religion is? Religion is bad people's attempts to get to a good God. You know what the gospel is? The good God's going to bad people. Good God, I was possessive, but whatever. The good God going to bad people. 
hard, cold religion that they were used to under the leadership of the Pharisees was bad people trying to get to a good God. What Jesus was, was the good God coming to bad people. To Matthew, follow me. I have not come to call those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. The problem with the Pharisees, and the reason that later on in the book of Matthew, we will see Jesus be so hard on them, and the reason why they're always like in opposition to Jesus here, why they're the antagonists once again in this story, even as they have, were last week, is because the problem with them is they basically saw themselves as good. They saw themselves as good. And there's two difficulties with that. Number one, it's a wrong view of self in light of God and his righteousness. It's a wrong view of self in light of God and his righteousness. Look at what Romans says about us together, humanity. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who even understands. There's no one who even seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. And the Pharisees' perspective was that they were the ones who did good, who were seeking God, who were in some way good, and whom Jesus was choosing to keep company with were bad, certainly in comparison to them. And this created this real divide, and it wasn't a divide that they were willing to cross. Again, Pharisees didn't normally go after tax collectors and sinners. If they wanted to repent and write and get themselves clean, they could come into the fold. They weren't going after them. They were unclean. They were the good. They were the bad. The scriptures say there are none good. That's shocking news in our world. You know, we have a mantra in our world. We have an understanding that we are basically good. That's the idea from which we start. People are basically good. Human nature is basically good. The Bible just starts from an opposite perspective. People are basically bad. And the world doesn't like to hear that news. That's why the gospel is basically not popular. Because <laughs> there's only good news when there's been bad news. Bad news is we're bad. We're not good. We're, we've been in rebellion to God. The good news is God has come after us. The failure of so much of humanity, even in our culture, is to esteem ourselves as good. That's what the Pharisees were doing. We're supposed to learn something from that. We're supposed to see they're the antagonists here. They're the opposition. They're on the wrong page. They haven't figured it out. Why? They see themselves as good. And a nuance of that is, again, they see themselves as good in comparison to others. And this is a dangerous place. Remember what Jesus, uh, this little story he told in Luke 18. Look at this. He told this story to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else. Raise your hand if that's you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that was totally a joke, but you know what, Peter? God bless you, bro. <laughs> Peter raised his hand. Yeah? Okay, cool. There's more of you. Peter's the only semi-honest one in the room. Oh, now I feel like it's me. Okay. Anyway. Jesus told this parable to them, to Peter and I. <laughs> Peter and me, proper grammar. Anyway, two men went up to the temple to pray, Jesus said. 
one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Just like the two parties we have in our story here. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed. Listen to this prayer. You'll love this. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Just pause right there. That's a bad prayer. (laughs) It's not the right approach. God, thank you I'm not like other people. They're robbers and evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He, the Pharisee, obviously felt better than those who are around them. And and around him. And, and on what basis? If we see the next verse, it wasn't something intrinsic. It wasn't anything of real value. It was these external things that he was doing. I fast twice a week, and I give a tenth of all I get. I'm a good Christian. Go back to the previous slide, please, Jen. That one, thank you. I'm a good Christian. I'm a good Pharisee. I'm not like these other people. I do the right things. So I thank you that I'm not like these other people around me here who can't seem to get it together. Who are still struggling with this other stuff. I'm I'm not like that. I've got my ducks in a row. I'm doing the right stuff. I, I fast twice a week. And I tithe. I got it together. Look, bad attitude. Sometimes we can ourselves drift toward that attitude. When we forget passages like Romans 13, it says, look, there's nobody good. There's nobody who's actually seeking God. That we're all sinners, and then we're saved by grace. Honestly, least likely to get saved, all of us, but for the pursuing, fervent, passionate love of God. And we, we, we get in the door by grace, and it's a narrow way And we're all kind of like cattle. We get in here together through the cross of Jesus Christ. And then by the power of the Holy Spirit, and also through grace, we on occasion start to get a few things together. You know what I mean? Like a few things together. I don't know, whatever your things are, you've been getting together. We we forgive a few people. We stop abusing some substances. We, you know, stop looking at some stuff. We stop talking this way. Whatever, we start to get our stuff together. And that's good. That's the way it ought to be. That's the process of sanctification. We ought to, by the power of the Holy Spirit, with the help of Jesus, for the glory of Jesus, begin to get some stuff together. But we don't want to drift this way. Sometimes that happens in the church. We get a few things together, and then somebody else is just squeezed through the narrow way by their faith in Jesus Christ, and there they are with their full mess, and we're like, oh. Glad I'm not like you. But see, we are not the antagonists in the story. We're not the Pharisees. We're at the party with Jesus. We're the tax collectors. We're the sinners, which in that context in this day meant irreligious, totally disregarded the Jewish religious system, and flagrantly immoral. We're at the party with Jesus. We're not these other guys. So we're to relate more to the next couple verses where Jesus says, but the tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven. He beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. 
And look at Christ's commentary on that. He says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. That's what's happening in the economy of God. And the Pharisees were still hung up on this religion thing. They weren't yet seeing this gospel thing, this grace thing, this love of God thing. It's always been there. It wasn't a new thing, but it's now incarnate. God in the flesh, in Christ, in Capernaum, at the house, in the party, inviting Matthew. They haven't seen it yet. So they're they're uncomfortable with what's going on. And when Jesus is at this dinner with other tax collectors and Matthew and sinners, they're worried about two things. They're worried that these people who are unclean and unacceptable are now somehow going to think that they're accepted by Jesus. They're worried about that. And guess what? They were. That's the whole point. Jesus said, follow me to these types and accepted them as they were with their brokenness and their mess and their rebellion and their sin. That's who Jesus came. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. They were worried about that message because it seemed, quite frankly, too easy to them. They don't fast twice a week and they don't tithe. They're not doing the right things. They don't look like good Jewish boys. They don't look like good Christians. They were worried that they would somehow think that they were accepted by this Jewish rabbi, and they were. But the other thing that they were worried about, and I want us to hear this, is they were worried that somehow Jesus is consorting with these people, his presence at their party, his his dining with them and his fellowship with them would make them think that he somehow condoned their behavior and lifestyle. That he somehow was just fine with whatever it was in Matthew that made Matthew a tax collector. They were worried that Jesus just would, they would perceive that Jesus was condoning those things. And the truth is, he did not. And he was not. They, as sinners, were accepted into fellowship with Jesus. But the stuff that made them be defined in our text as sinners and tax collectors was not being condoned by Jesus. This is an important point. Remember the woman who was caught in adultery? That's a messy little story. The Pharisees, once again, the antagonists, the opposition here, the religious establishment, they bring this woman and they say, look, we just caught this woman in an act, Jesus, in the act. And they throw her at the feet of Jesus and they say, our law says she ought to be stoned. What do you say? And you might remember some of the story, right? Jesus said, well, whoever doesn't have any sin, go ahead and throw the first stone. And one by one, the people started to leave and they were all gone. Jesus looks at the woman laying there in all her shame and horror and fear despised by all the audience around. And Jesus says to her, where are those who condemn you? Nor do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. That's what he said. Go and sin no more. She was accepted. I don't condemn you. She was released. Go. But he said to her, sin no more. This is why when Jesus came, when the incarnation is spoken of in John chapter 1, verse 14, it says that Jesus brought to us not only the glory of God, but grace and truth. Grace 
I don't condemn you. You're released. Go. And truth, don't sin anymore. You've been accepted with all your sin, but now that you've been accepted into my fold, Jesus says, don't sin anymore. The good news is that in Christ, God calls us to himself just as we are. Jesus didn't go up to Matthew in his tax collector booth and say, listen, bro, you got to clean this mess up. You clean up your gig and you get right and you stop working for Rome and you stop stealing from the people and you stop abusing authority and you stop all your greed, then you can come and be one of my guys. He didn't say anything like that. Walked up to his booth and he said, you follow me as you are. The good news is that God calls us just as we are. The good news is also that God calls us to become something that we aren't. More than we are. The old cheesy Christian saying is God loves you just as you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. We are accepted into fellowship with Jesus through the forgiveness of sin but we are expected to follow Jesus in forsaking sin. You get that? That's, that's important because now this is discipleship. Because Matthew wasn't called to a Bible study. Like, hey, bro, just, you know, come to this Bible study. He was called to discipleship. He wasn't just called to a Sunday morning church service. He was called to become a disciple. And part of that was he was accepted into fellowship with Jesus through the forgiveness of sin, but then expected to follow Jesus by forsaking sin. Because of the wonderful pursuit of grace and the love of God brought to him, Jesus came to seek and to save sinners who had no hope in and of themselves. Connectedly, it says in Ephesians 4 and 5, therefore... I, the prisoner of the Lord, Paul says, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Follow me. I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise. You see, I think that when we read this story about Matthew, we have in and of ourselves a a clear expectation of how this thing ought to go. We read about Matthew being called by Jesus, and we have a clear expectation of how this ought to go. Because of God's love, Matthew, the bad tax collector, is called into the company of Jesus, and that is beautiful. And then what we almost intuitively expect is that Matthew leaves behind his tax-collecting ways and follows Jesus into a different, better way of being. And that's beautiful. And that that's the continuation and the completion of the beauty. I think we expect that of the story. And we would be somewhat confused and disappointed if Matthew kept on with his tax-collecting ways. We expect there to be an empty booth in Matthew's wake. We would be surprised. 
if we went on to read. Yeah, so anyway, Matthew, you know, he had this dinner with Jesus and these other sinners, and he spent time with the Savior of the world, God in the flesh, and then he just went back to his booth and kept extorting money from people and being greedy and abusing the people around him. He just kept on doing what he always did. Went back to his booth. Wouldn't we be a little confused by that ending? Isn't that not the way that the story's supposed to go? And so aren't we a little confused and disappointed when we ourselves find ourselves going back to our booths? It's not how the story goes. It's not how we would expect it to unfold. That's that's not where the beauty is. And why do we have that expectation? We all have that expectation. Matthew's going to follow Jesus after this. He's not going back to the booth. Why do we have that expectation? Do we expect that Matthew would forsake his tax-collecting ways because now there is some debt that he owed to God? It's not the gospel. That's not how it works. Do we suppose that Matthew would forsake his tax-collecting ways because now that he's been accepted into fellowship with Jesus, now he had better do everything right from here on out or Jesus is going to just flick him off? When I say flip, I said flick. That was sketchy. It's like, anyway, Jesus is going to discard him, get rid of him, send him away. Is that what we think? That's not the gospel. I think that. We assume that Matthew would forsake his tax collecting ways and leave in his wake an empty booth because in Jesus and fellowship with him, he experienced something better than the booth. That the longing that drove him to the booth in the first place, to take on that life and that identity, that longing that was there was actually met in Christ and his love. I think we expect that Matthew would have forsaken his tax collecting ways and left in his wake an empty booth because for him, being in the presence and experiencing the love of Christ was transformative. I mean, I think we would assume that what he was experiencing with Jesus was better than what he experienced in the booth. And again, wouldn't wouldn't it seem so weird to us if like the next day after this dinner party, we saw Matthew and we're like, dude, you had dinner with Jesus, bro. Like, how was that? Like the guy that touched the leper and the leper was healed? The one who spoke to the storm and the wind and the waves stopped. The one who cast out the evil from those guys that nobody could even get near. The one that forgave the sins of the paralytic and then caused him to walk. You just had dinner with him. How was that, dude? And Matthew's like, eh. it was cool. What are you, a teenager? What are you, what, it was cool? What are you talking about? Wouldn't we be a little miffed and wouldn't we find that strange? If Matthew didn't find something wonderful in Christ that was better than what he had in the booth. And can't we relate to that? 
And wouldn't we, because we love Matthew, wouldn't we say to Matthew, Matthew, why are you going back to this booth? What is it in that booth that is so attractive to you when you've experienced Jesus? Wouldn't we remind him as we just did? Jesus is the one who had authority over disease and sickness. That Jesus is the one who had authority over nature and circumstances and everything that threatens us. That Jesus is the one who had authority and power over Satan and demons and evil. That Jesus proved that he's the only one who has authority to forgive sins. Wouldn't we, in kindness, say to Matthew, how could you see who Christ is, experience him, and not fully follow him? Why are you going back to the booth? And you know, Matthew, you're smart. You're a tax collector. You, you can calculate what... Doesn't it seem, seeing who Jesus is and his authority over nature and sickness and death and sin and the devil, doesn't it seem that sticking with him and following him would at some point pay dividends? Doesn't he seem from the gospel that you wrote to be worthy of following? Matthew, what is it about the booth that has such a hold on you? Maybe, Matthew, what you ought to do is take Jesus back to your booth and just be honest with him. Show him around your booth a little bit. And say, Jesus, here's what this booth means to me. Here's why I keep going back to it. This is a place where my identity was formed. Jesus, this is a place where I feel powerful, more powerful than those around me. This is a place where I can hide my weakness and hide behind some sort of authority that I've created here. This is a place where I have my stacks of money. See, Jesus, here's my money. Here's a means of coercion that I use when I don't get my way. This is my booth. Maybe, Matthew... Those things in the booth that have such a pull on you, just, just take Jesus to him and show him to him and just be honest with Jesus about what's got this hold on you and why you keep going back there. And just let Jesus show himself to be better than those things. The bad things that are there, the violence, the coercion, the greed, the falsehood, the betrayal, and even the things that are there that are not so bad, but you've made such a big deal about. The power, the authority, the money. Just give Jesus a chance. Have a second dinner with him. To show himself to be better than that old booth. And so I start thinking in my own life, why am I so easily convinced? Let me say it differently. Why am I so easily unconvinced that Jesus is better than my old booth and the stuff in it? Remember Israel and the Exodus? They got so weird. I mean, look at this. This is during the Exodus. Now, the people, Israel, in the Exodus, became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. 
right? They're grumbling and complaining. This is hard. I, we get it. The rabble who were among them had greedy desires. And also the sons of Israel wept again and said, who's going to give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat free in Egypt. The cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our appetite's gone. And there's nothing at all to look at except the stupid manna. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. In Egypt, you were slaves. In Egypt, your children were murdered. In Egypt, your backs were broken. In Egypt, you were not a free people. In Egypt, you were under a heavy load. Why are you now after having been delivered by a great God who loves you, longing to go back to Egypt. You see how it's a, uh, there's, the, uh, in hard times, their, their perspective was perverted. You know, sometimes I find myself being unconvinced of the betterness of Jesus because I think there was something better about the good old days. I just think about the garlic and the onions and the leek and the fish. I forget that I was a slave. Sometimes I find myself unconvinced of the betterness of Jesus because I really enjoy the pleasure of sin. Look what Hebrews says about Moses. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is unseen. Moses got it. Wouldn't it be weird to us if the end of the Exodus story was that Israel ends up going back to Egypt? Wouldn't it seem strange to our ears and to our sensibilities if we got to the end of the Pentateuch, the first five books, and it closes and says, yeah, so in the end, Israel went back to Egypt and submitted themselves to slavery again. They got their garlic. And wouldn't it seem strange if Matthew went back to his booth? And isn't it strange that we do that? I need to hear the Apostle Paul when he says in Philippians, whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. 
Mark that phrase, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. So sometimes I need to walk in my mind with Jesus back to Egypt and just be honest with him about the garlic and the leeks, the onions and the fish, and the pull that they have on me. And say in faith, Jesus, I think you're better. I think Paul was right. I think there's a surpassing value in knowing you. Jesus, come back to my booth with you. Let me show you these things. And let him confront him. He's my savior. He never said to Matthew, listen to me, he never said to Matthew, clean up your booth, dude. He never said to Israel, listen, buck up and deal with Pharaoh and get yourself out of there. Never said any of that. He's the Savior. Came to Matthew, he came to Israel, and he saved them. And he's come to us, and he saves us. And he delivers us with power, the power of the Holy Spirit. And if the story started to turn, and we see Matthew heading back toward the booth, we'd say, Matthew, don't do it. I know, but, but you don't understand. I got this stack of money in there. Matthew, don't do it. Just stick with Jesus. Israel, don't go back to Egypt. God is better than. To discover like the psalmist discovered, Lord, your love is better than life. I think we have the expectation of that being the way the story ought to go. In the wake of Matthew, there should have been an empty booth. And there we are at the party with Jesus. Tax collectors and sinners saved by grace. And we've heard the same call, follow me. And there ought to be in our wake some empty booths. You know what helps me? leave those booths empty and all the stuff in them? The fact that they're the empty tomb. Because I have a mighty deliverer whose name is Jesus. And even death could not hold him down. And he's victorious over sin and its power. He's victorious over all the things that smack of death, like Rome and the oppressor of that day and like Satan, our enemy. And he rose from the dead to give me new life, abundant life, and eternal life. Took me in just as I am, but he loves me too much to leave me that way. The power of the empty tomb, the power that rose Christ from the dead is the same power that works in us to help us follow Jesus and be who he called us to be. May we, by grace, always have Egypt in the rearview mirror. May we be helped by the Holy Spirit this week in letting Jesus confront our booths and the little things hidden there that we might stay in the wonderful place of fellowship with him at that meal. Amen? Thank you, Lord, for your gracious pursuit of us.
and the evidence of your victory that is the empty tomb. Help us now, Jesus, as those who have been forgiven by grace to follow you by grace. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are the power of God in our lives. And that you are the teacher of all things. Maybe this morning, maybe this week, you would help us to see Egypt's in the booths that we're headed back toward. Help us to faithfully follow you. Maybe this morning, Lord, we need to repent of some things. Maybe we need to clarify some things. Maybe we just need to come before you and say, Jesus, I, I, I believe, according to what I just heard and by your word, that you're better than. But these things are strong in my life, and I want to be delivered. Thank you, Christ. You are the deliverer. Deliver your people today. May the power of God be present here for deliverance. May the power of God be present here for healing. May we experience fully the love of the Father. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who pours the love of the Father into our hearts. May we rejoice and bask in the acceptance that we have in you by the forgiveness of sins. In Jesus' name, amen.